While it sounds logical, of course we want more harmonious relationships, most of us don't do anything about these relationships. We just sort of accept them as a thorn in our side. Um, I think partly because we don't know how to fix them. And that's one of the things I've really set out to do, not just in this book, but in, in almost all my writing, is really give people the tools, the language, the confidence to actually address these situations when we're in them, because they impact our, our ability to do our job and our well-being. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, and I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. My guest today is Amy Gallo. Amy is an expert in conflict, communication, and workplace dynamics. She combines the latest management research with practical advice to deliver evidence-based ideas on how to improve relationships and excel at work. In her role as a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review, Amy writes about interpersonal dynamics, communicating ideas, leading and influencing people, and building your career. She's the author of two books, the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict, and her latest book, which she joins us to talk about today, is Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. Amy, welcome to Unleashed. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I've been, uh, been following your work for a long time and, uh, and really was, I've been looking forward to this conversation. And I, I have to ask you, though, before we get into your, into your latest book, mm-hmm. how did you become so passionate about improving workplace dynamics in the first place? Yeah, you know, I my early career, I started in nonprofit world, actually, I was doing HIV prevention work in San Francisco, and then in Russia, um, which is a whole nother conversation. But then I went to uh, management consulting, and um, which was a very abrupt change. <laughs> but what I noticed, and what I really observed in, in no matter where I was working, no matter the context was that whatever you know, beautiful strategy or vision or even execution you had planned, no matter what that looked like, it lived or died based on how people actually interacted. So if your CFO and your COO do not get along, you can have a perfectly well designed strategy that just doesn't come to fruition because of that tension and the tension in the way it impacts everyone who works on those folks' teams, the customers you interact with, right? It, it just, to me, seemed like the unspoken, um, you know, denominator that really affects whether we're successful or not, both at an organizational level, um, but also on an interpersonal level, right? Very much my good days are often good because I've had positive interactions and my bad days are stressful because of some snarky email I received or troublesome conversation I had to have. Yeah, I feel that. And uh, that's kind of the work, that's the main work that we do with groups is we help leadership teams execute better. And you're right, 
relationships, I think, is the fundamental difference between companies that execute well and those that don't. It's, it's not often the lack of, uh, of good strategy or ideas. That's important, but it usually are, is the people dynamics for sure. Yeah. And so, it's not, I mean, to be clear, it's not about friends, right? Like you're, those people don't have to be friends. And, and I'm sure you see leadership teams that have a lot of mutual respect, psychological safety, open and honest dialogue. They don't have to like each other outside work as long as all of those elements are there. Um, and that's what makes, that's what makes a team able to execute. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to get into, into your latest book now. So getting along, how to work with difficult people and get along with anyone. And I, what I, one of the things, I mean, the, the book is just filled with great information, first of all. But the other thing I really love about the book is that you've really designed it as like, um, it's like a working, living guidebook that people can continue to reference as they run into different situations. And so it's, it, it's, it literally is a book that you should keep at the corner of your desk for as long as you were involved in any kind of a team uh, uh, environment. So well done and congratulations on that. Thank you. Now, Thank you. How big of a problem are we dealing with here? I mean, how common is incivility at work? Hugely common. And actually, I really draw, unfortunately, and anyone watching or listening, I'm sure is like, yep, I've got that problem, right? It's rare that I'll tell someone that what I write about or what I speak about, and they'll say, huh, I never faced that, right? And everyone has an ex example, either something that's going on right now or something from earlier in their career where they've either felt mistreated, disrespected, they just couldn't get along with someone. And the, the research really backs that up. I, I rely very heavily on the and in the book on the research of um, a Georgetown professor named Christine Porath, who really studies incivility. She's looked at it across industries. She's done really large thousands of people in her surveys, and 98% of people report experiencing incivility at work. I mean, it, it is staggering the amount that that we see it. And then the the impact, the cost to the organization, to of course to the individual, but to the organization of having to, to deal with that incivility is also quite large in terms of the impact on creativity, productivity, resilience, um, you know, team dynamics. There's other research I cite in the book uh, where people looked at the difference between high-performing teams and low-performing teams and really connected it to the quality of the interactions between the people on, on the team. So we're, we're talking very high stakes and a very broad problem that I think almost everyone can relate to. Yeah, and speaking of some of the statistics, and, and I literally just had this example. It was Thanksgiving in, up in Canada, and mm -hmm. I literally just had this occur on Friday. I had a a bit of an uncomfortable email exchange with a colleague. One of those ones where afterwards, it wasn't like horrible, but you're like, yeah, I, I probably should have waited and taken a walk or, or, uh, or uh, maybe picked up the phone, that kind of thing. But yeah. the, there was a stat in your book that it was 80% it was, um, of people have lost work time from uncivil emails. And here's the thing that I would love for you to expand on, Amy, is why is it so triggering to work with difficult people? And I wonder, like, could you talk a little bit about the physiology when it's happening? Yeah. So there's a couple reasons that it's really tough on us. And that email, the way you described it is actually perfect. That really reflects, I think, the experience most of us have, which is that it's rare someone sends me an email and is like, you're a jerk, right? It's Instead, it's very, it's more subtle. They challenge my expertise or they question whether I truly followed through on something or right and it's these subtle things where you're like wait 
I'm not sure how to interpret that, right? So that's that is the experience. And there's a couple things that happen in physiologically when when that goes on. First of all, we interpret it as a threat. It might be a threat to harmony in the workplace, right? I'm, I'm I believe we should be getting along and we're not getting along. It might be a threat to our identity, our ego, to our sense of self, maybe to our career, right? If they're challenging my expertise and they've CC'd half the organization, right? Is that going to impact my reputation? And when we experience threats, unfortunately, our bodies are just not good at discerning the difference between a big threat, so being chased down by a bear, um, something that doesn't happen very much here in Rhode Island, but certainly we could all viscerally experience, um, and the difference between, you know, not getting our way on a project plan or, you know, getting a good performance review. Those threats, right, equally have the same impact on us, which is that we go into what emotional intelligence experts call amygdala hijack. So we lose access to our prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for rational thinking. And the amygdala takes over, which is responsible for protecting ourselves. So we get the physical symptoms like sweaty palms or elevated heart rate. And we just simply don't make great choices in those moments. And because of our negativity bias, all of us are more attuned to negative situations rather than positive ones. So that email you received on that Friday or that email exchange, you probably had, you know, many, many neutral or even positive email exchanges, but you're still thinking about that negative one, again, because our brains are trying to protect us. They're scanning the environment for negative threats. Because of that, we get really fixated on these negative interactions and we don't we're, we're unable to sort of see the big picture. And instead we think, oh, I had a horrible day because of one email exchange. And the reality is you probably had a really good day with one bad interaction. Yeah, that's, yeah, that resonates. Uh, it's like getting off the stage after giving a talk and you've got 95 pieces of positive feedback and there's two constructive ones. And where do you focus? On the two. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, and it's funny, I have to, you know, I have to tell you, I did this, um, the, I rec- pre-recorded a talk for a, a conference I did last week, and the experience of pre-recording was so bad for me personally. Like I just was not feeling confident about it. I, I stumbled over my words, and I knew they were editing it, but I literally got in my car afterwards and cried because I was just like, that was a horrible performance. I was not my best self. I attended the conference and watched the pre-recorded video and it was fine. Like it was actually good. And and again, I was like, I was so focused on the five times I stumbled or, you know, the time I lost my train of thought and not on the fact that of that 30 minutes, 29 were fantastic. And no one was, they even edited it out the, the stumbles and the, and the losing track of my thought, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for your vulnerability with that as well. I, I always think like, I think that those, those uh, uh, moments of when you admit those kinds of things are really helpful to people that are tuning in as well, because I think from the outside, we look and say, okay, well, Amy Gallo is a successful, best-selling author, thousands of followers on social media. She's been through this before. Surely she doesn't have those kinds of moments of self-doubt, but I think it's reassuring to know that you do. We do. We do. <laughs> so I want to get into some, into sort of some, some what and some how a little bit, but what makes people difficult to work with in the first place? Mm, that's a good question. And, and there are many answers to this, but I will, I'll start by saying difficult is in the eye of the beholder. So I've worked with people who I found so challenging. And then I watched them 
go off to lunch with their work friends, you know, collaborate with another colleague. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, is it me? Right. So it's oftentimes not about specifically that person's behavior, but it's how we interpret it and respond to it. So it's really very much about the dynamic between us and not just their behavior. Now, of course, there are people who are overly pessimistic or passive aggressive, right? And no one likes to work with, with people with, who exhibit those behaviors. But I, I hesitate, and I know I use the phrase on the, on the cover of the book, difficult people, but I hesitate to label someone as difficult because I do think it really depends on the context and what you're giving in that interaction. And someone who might be really passive aggressive in one context may be very straightforward in another. That's not to say we don't have personality traits. We certainly do. And and for yeah. example, being pessimistic might, might be one, um, but it's really about how we interpret that behavior and then how we react to it that makes makes people challenging. Now, there are some things that universally can often be challenging. So insecurity, for example, right? Really hard to deal with if someone's really looking to you to feed their ego or or being really defensive in their ego. So they're they're you know sort of pushing you away or micromanaging you. You know, those are things that really universally can can be challenging, similar with know-it-all, right? We don't most of us don't like to work with someone who's constantly explaining things we know or acting like they know a lot more. You know, there those are universal things, but but again, there might be someone who's like, I love their confidence. I love when they explain things to me. You know, we just, it's again, how we interpret. Right. So rather than suffer in silence, why is it so important to take some steps to create a more harmonious work environment? And, and, and maybe that sounds like a really obvious question, but I, but I am interested in, in, in some of the deeper reasons of why it matters, Amy. And I don't think that's an obvious question because... While it sounds logical, of course, we want more harmonious relationships. Most of us don't do anything about these relationships. We just sort of accept them as a thorn in our side. Um, I think partly because we don't know how to fix them. And that's one of the things I've really set out to do, not just in this book, but in, in almost all my writing, is really give people the tools, the language, the confidence to actually address these situations when we're in them. Because they impact our our ability to do our job and our well-being. So, you know, if you have, you know, someone who is, let's just say, a political operator, someone who's really focused on their own career, does not care if they step on toes or even harm other people's careers to, to achieve what they want to achieve, right, that's going to be... Um, you know, that that's going to, you could say, oh, I'm just going to ignore it, right? I'm just going to let that slide. But ultimately, there's going to be harm and cost to working with that person. And if you just pretend it's not happening, you're missing out on an opportunity to, A, maybe further your own career, or um, B, maybe even have better well-being at work. I think there's this sense and, and I don't know if this is particularly U.S. with our Puritan roots, but there's the sense that there should be a good amount of suffering that goes along with work. And I don't think we need to suffer, right? Why should we endure these really negative or even toxic interactions when we have tools that are at our, um, you know, at, that are available to us that we can turn things around? Right. Yes, that's a great segue. Now you have done such a great job of 
labeling the cast of characters. And so I, wanna, I actually want to list the cast of characters, the types of difficult people we encounter. And I can imagine anyone listening is going to be like, yep, check, check, check. <laughs> uh, dealt with that one, dealing with that one, avoiding that one. But, but, um, but the common cast of characters you say that we deal with at work in terms of difficult uh, coworkers, the insecure manager, the pessimist, the victim, the passive aggressive peer, the know-it-all, the tormentor, the biased coworker, and the political operator. Now, are some of those personas more common than others? You know, the, the pers the, I call them archetypes in the book, although someone recently yeah. called them patterns of behavior, and I liked that better. It made me, I was like, oh, I should edit the book. But because I do think, <laughs> because I don't, yeah. one of the risks of these archetypes or these personas is that we use yes. them dismissive labels, right? So if I'm dealing with someone who's passive aggressive, it's easy to just say, oh, they're passive aggressive, not worth my time, right? Or even worse, it's, it's, very easy for us to fall into confirmation bias. So once someone starts acting passive aggressively, then we see everything they do through through that lens. So yes. the archetypes are really meant to be to help us get the advice we need for our specific situation. So if you're dealing with someone who's a pessimist or who plays the victim, you can turn to that chapter, find the tactics you need because there is research that shows what tactics actually work. Now, I, I do yeah. feel like um, these sort of patterns of, of behavior are, there are some that I get asked about more often than not. And the one that I, I can always count on whenever I do a talk, it's going to be the first, second, or third question is, how do I deal with passive aggressive behavior? That is one of the most common ones. And if you think about it, I'm sure you, like me, can think of many times that we ourselves have behaved passive aggressively. It's a tactic that we do all sometimes use to get what we want, or we think it'll get us what we want. So it's it's sort of a universal behavior. So that, that one is very common. The other one, and, and this is why it's the first one in the book, is the insecure boss. Um, and there's yeah. good reason that bosses behave insecure. You know, oftentimes people get promoted beyond their capability. Um, oftentimes, at filling that role of a leader or a manager, you just aren't sure you're doing it well. There's not good measures of what good leadership looks like. So there's a lot of insecurity that, that goes along with that. But those are the two that I find um, tend to be most common, the insecure boss and, and the passive-aggressive peer. Yeah, that, that, makes, that makes really good sense. Uh, and, and I like how you phrase that people are sometimes promoted above their level of competency. So it's not necessarily all their fault. Now, there, when, I, when, I, when I read the book, there, was, um, there were certainly some universal tactics and strategies to deal with at a high level. And then there's some customized strategies. And I'd, I'd like to cover some of both. But I think, Amy, a good place to start would be no matter what challenging situation that you run into, and, and even going back to what you said earlier about trying to calm your amygdala, what are a few things that somebody could do regardless of the type of archetype or pattern of behavior they run into. Yeah. So there is actually a chapter, chapter 11, that the nine principles for getting along with anyone that really are meant to be sort of the touch points that anytime you're dealing with someone, whether they fit one or many of the, of the archetypes, or maybe they defy categorization altogether, right? Is these are the touch points that you really want to go back to. Um, and these will help you get out of amygdala hijack if that's where you've gone, because it, it helps you to sort of remove yourself a little bit from the situation, start to see it differently. And I'll share just one or two of those 
for you. And then we can, if you want to dig into others, we can, of course, um, you know, yeah. one is to remember that your perspective is just one perspective. So our brains, when it's senses a threat, starts to tell ourselves a story, right? And that story often is this person's horrible. I'm an innocent victim. Why are they doing this? Right. Story that is probably not entirely true. And so one of the things to remember is that how you're seeing the situation is likely flawed. It's based on assumptions you've made. It's based on your unique perspective and your experience. And that person or even other people outside the dynamic are going to see it differently. And starting to think about what those perspectives might be unhooks you from that story you're telling yourself and gives you a moment to go, wait, okay, wait, what if I'm wrong, right? What assumptions have I made? How is some, How would someone else see this? How would that other person see this situation, right? Putting yourself in their shoes just for a moment to both help you see a different perspective, but also to give you a little bit of empathy. Because the more sort of charged you go into the conversation or um, you know, sending that email you wish you didn't send because you're just angry and you sort of rattle it off, right? All of that is going to, um, it, is, it happens very quickly. And, and we really have to sort of catch ourselves before we fall, in, fall into those really what we later regret as, as actions that, that we wish we hadn't done. So that, that's one principle. The yeah. other, I think, no matter what tactics you choose to use, um, you know, and no matter who you're dealing with is to treat that, that your efforts to make the situation better as an experiment. You know, I wish I could promise that you're going to, if you're dealing with the, um, you know, tormentor that you would go to that chapter, you would carry out those tactics in the right order, and then everything would be better. <laughs> right. But life is certainly messy. Relationships are even messier. And so chances are, you're going to have to try a lot of different things. And, and I like to, rather than you know, feel like, oh, I tried that, it didn't work, and then feel demotivated by it. I like to remind myself that these are little micro experiments. So with the passive aggressive person, I'm going to focus on the underlying meaning of what they say, rather than the maybe the snarky tone that they deliver it in. I'm going to try that for two weeks. Let me see how that works. Okay, that didn't solve anything. Let me try a different tactic, right? So you just sort of try different tactics out, pay attention to what works, what doesn't, learn from it, and then re-up, try another tactic. And sometimes you have to return to tactics that worked for a while and then didn't and go back to them. But, you know, it's it's really just, I like to think of myself as a scientist in that moment, studying this dynamic and how can I actually influence it? Yeah, that's some really solid advice. And, and, and I think that that is what we're seeing more and more as a pattern of what separates good leaders from great leaders is this willingness and uh, to embrace experimentation with the world getting more uncertain, uh, not, not less. Now, Amy, would you recommend that people actually take notes of their approaches then so they can go back and revisit what they tried and what, what archetype they think they were dealing with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you could um, you know, sort of create a list of, okay, here's the archetype I think I'm, I'm dealing with. And, and remember, you're not, the certainty is the enemy of change, right? You're not, if you are so certain about the, who this person is and what's going to work and what isn't, you really have to have that, that curious mindset of what, what could change? What, how could I influence this dynamic? 
And I love the idea of writing it down, right? This is the archetype. Here are five tactics I want to try. Let me see what happens when I try number one. Okay, I learned that doesn't work in a group meeting, but it worked when I we were um, on a one-on-one call, right? Or um, tactic two worked when I, but only when I paired it with tactic three. All right, and and the the goal is, of course, to improve your relationship with that that person, or at least your interactions with that person. But it's also that process of experimentation and reflecting on what worked and what doesn't builds your interpersonal resilience. So next time you encounter um, someone who is a passive aggressive, you'll probably be better equipped, at least feel more confident in trying to address the situation. Yeah, for sure. Now, one of the things I like about the terminology difficult people is I think difficult people is like, that's like the alarm that goes off. That's the trigger to say there's an issue. It's like it's uh, the, maybe it's the amygdala, maybe not Amy, but it's like, it's your fault. It's not mine. And yeah. so one of, the, one of the first steps that you recommend is before you start dealing with somebody else's behavior, first start acknowledging your own role first. Why is that so critical? Yeah. I call this in the book, cleaning up your side of the street and that's a phrase I learned from a friend who who actually was had a son who was struggling and her son's therapist told her, you know, while he's doing his work on himself, you really need to figure out what baggage you bring to this relationship. And it, I've later learned, actually, it's a, a common phrase in, in AA or Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. Um, and it, it makes so much sense to me that, of course, we're going to bring our own perceptions, our um, emotional baggage, our own hangups, our own our own quirks and behaviors to this dynamic. The more you can be aware of how you're feeding into it, the more equipped you will be to try to change it. And I'm not saying you're going to magically change all of your annoying quirks. We've all got them, right? But being aware of it, you can start to see. Okay, this is how this is feeding into the dynamic. So you know, take for example the insecure boss. If you're dealing with someone else's insecurity and you loathe insecurity, right? And something that really pushes buttons for you, you're probably going to be retaliating left and right, right? Resisting their micromanaging, pointing out all the ways they're they're distrustful or, you know, and, and it's, it just doesn't help. And especially with insecurity, you end up feeding the insecurity or the distrust even more. So knowing what you need to do to, to change the dynamic. And that's another experiment. Like what happens if I just stop caring about whether they micromanage or what, what happens if I just sort of set a really clear boundary, right? Well, how does that change, change things? Um, and I do think that, that so much of the work in difficult relationships and de- when you're dealing with difficult people is about raising your own awareness about your own behaviors and saying, okay, well, what can I change? Whether that's my perspective the way I'm seeing the situation, my emotional response, or actually what I'm saying and doing. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And uh, it's a good segue, segue as well. So you mentioned the insecure boss, and I, and I do want to dig into that one a little bit more. So what, what are some simple strategies to deal with an insecure boss? Because so many people are, are in that situation right now. Yeah. So number one, and I, I don't love that this is the, that this is the advice I have to give, but it research really shows that it works, um, which is that part of the insecurity is that they don't feel respected. They don't feel um, they're good enough, right? That's, that's natural insecurity. A lot of us feel, 
Um, and so one of the tactics that that research has shown works is to actually flatter them. Um, and I don't mean false flattery. I don't mean to say that you should say, you know, you're such a good manager if they're not a good manager, but to find something that they are genuinely good at and to point that out, right? Because that helps one, it does it helps bolster their own confidence, which is ultimately what you want when you're dealing with an insecure manager is for them to feel a little more confident and secure. Um, but it also, you know, shows that you have that you trust them because one of the insecure one of the sort of behaviors of the insecure manager is they're constantly scanning for um, do people think I'm okay? Do think people think I'm okay? And if you signal that you don't think they're okay, you then become the problem in their mind. And so really it can both help bolster their confidence, but also start to create an alliance. And that, that alliance I think is really key. Now, this will be the last thing you want to do with an insecure manager because they're going to really uh, push your buttons and, and you probably want to spend less time with them. But the more you can help them achieve their goals, figure out what is it they actually want to do, and then figure out how can you help them do that. Again, forms a stronger bond between you, also gives them some wins so they hopefully have some more confidence. And I really encourage if you do use this tactic to not hide the work you've done, right? The last thing you want to do, I actually spoke to someone for the book who spent all this time helping an insecure manager achieve the targets they had set for that quarter. The, the insecure manager got all of the credit and the person who I was speaking to actually was so upset because the boss got promoted. And so they were like, wait, I just helped this insecure person who really actually doesn't know how to do their job succeed. And I'm sort of left behind. So you have to make sure while you're doing it, that it's also a joint win so that you're making clear how you participated in the project, how you helped out. You know, that might mean attending meetings where the boss is presenting about the project. That might mean sending some of the emails about it. So, so people associate you with it as well, but in a collaborative way with your boss. Yeah. And the thought of, uh, you know, platitudes and having to pandering and almost, you know, to manage up, I, there's just something that really doesn't sit well with me about that. Like, is there, is there a certain point, Amy, where you've crossed that threshold with your insecure manager that you could actually have a honest, frank conversation about what you're seeing? Yeah. And that's true. So you'll notice in the book, a lot of the tactics are sort of these softer, more subtle tactics yeah. where you don't actually have to address the behavior. You don't have to say, wow, you're insecure or wow, you're passive aggressive because that often doesn't work. Um, but like you say, a lot of those tactics don't sit well with people and they just don't feel comfortable doing them, which I totally respect. I do think that there's there is always the opportunity with any of the archetypes to get to a point where you can have a productive, honest conversation where you say, here's what is causing problems for me. You have to be careful, though, telling someone who's insecure, you're insecure, really is just going to make that worse, right? So you have to focus on the level of behavior. And, and I describe in the book, you know, um, in one of the later chapters, a, a tool called the Situation Behavior Impact Feedback Tool. So yeah. for example, with, yeah, with a know-it-all, you might say, you know, in that meeting, right? That's the situation. You interrupted me twice. That's the behavior. And the impact is that I didn't feel like I was respected and I didn't get to say what I really was thinking. And so 
And, and then you might even describe the impact not just to you, but the impact to the team, which is that we also signal to the team that it's okay to interrupt. And I, I don't think that's a good message to send, right? So, so you're really being very precise about the behavior that is causing you problems. Because I think with any of these archetypes, it's it can be very easy to just be like, that person bothers me, or they're they're just we we have a personality clash, or you know, and what you want to get to is well, what behaviors exactly are creating problems and how are they creating problems? And can I make a request around that? Right. So the request may be, can you please not interrupt um, when I'm speaking? Or the request may be. Can you know? Can you trust me to do this project? And can we check in less often? Because I'm starting to feel micromanaged. I know that's not your intention, but that's how I'm feeling. So just sort of to really focus on the behaviors that you would like to see changed and why you want them to change. Yeah, I could see how, how that would be effective. As a company and organization grows, Amy, there are what I would call invisible landmines, and we we sort of all know the the saying that you know people quit managers, they don't quit companies. As a company starts to grow, how how can senior leaders be scanning more intently to see if there are insecure bosses in their organization and, and maybe take steps to mitigate, avoid, uh, and improve it? Yeah. Well, there's a couple things I think that happen. You know, there I talked about in that chapter, I talk about some research that shows how many leaders actually feel insecure, right? And they're they're really questioning whether they're equipped. We some people call this imposter syndrome, but it first of all, recognize that insecurity is a normal human feeling, right? If you're not, if you have zero insecurity, you're in that very small elite group called psychopaths. <laughs> and so you want to insecurity is a good thing. It causes us to reflect. But to answer your question, you know, when as as a leader, when I'm looking at who I'm promoting, when you do promote someone, make clear why you think they are equipped, right? So feed that that sense of self for them of what exactly you think they can do in that role that someone else may not be able to do. What's the reason that they got promoted? That could again try to bolster their confidence. Yeah, no, that's I can see how that would be. Um... How that would be really helpful, and, and I think it it just emphasizes how if anybody that's in a senior leadership position, they must be working on creating safe spaces for people to be vulnerable, and which means they have to go first. But if we know that it's common for managers to feel that imposter syndrome uh, uh, and this high level of self doubt, I would hope that we can sort of lead from above to create those environments to say, "Hey, this is normal, and we're going to help you work through it." So right. um, that yeah, is, that is awesome. And even saying that, right, is that, um, you know, saying that it is normal to feel insecure when you first take on the role of the manager, right? Or, um, you know, to say, even tell a story of when I first started, here's what I thought management was. And I tried to prove myself by doing this, this, and this. And then I realized, oh, gosh, that actually is not what's really required of the role. This is what's required. And this is how I understood it. Um, and also, I think that the other challenge is that when managers get into that role, there is this sense of you're on a pedestal, people are watching you, people are judging you, and you yeah. feel like you have to be perfect. And to to really normalize managerial mistakes that and and really talk that's that's creating that psychological safety when you can talk about the fallibility of your managers 
that's going to give them the permission to to acknowledge that they feel insecure because most of the problematic behavior is not um, not so much about the the core insecurity, which, like I said, everyone feels. It's more about the behaviors that people exhibit in trying to hide that insecurity or to compensate for that insecurity. And those are the behaviors that really cause problems for the people that they that they manage. Yes, if if every company that was putting managers through leadership training or just about to promote somebody into a managerial position just highlighted the common emotions that somebody feels once they're in that role, imagine what that would do to the safety of the organization. And I, can, I think it's safe to say that that very rarely takes place. Yeah, well, and I think we, we unfortunately, we reward in most organizations, we reward overconfidence rather than yeah. vulnerability. And that's, it makes sense that actually this is um, the work of Tomas Chamora Pramusic, who wrote, who talks a lot about competence versus confidence. And, you know, he says, which is absolutely true, is that we're not good at measuring what a good manager is or what a good leader is. So instead of measuring it, we actually just rely on the person to tell us how good they are at it. So the more confident someone is, we're like, they're a great leader. They're a great manager, but it's often just bluster. And then we don't, we're not measuring the competence, we're measuring the confidence. And so when, like you said, if we just said to folks, these are the common emotions you might feel, you might feel insecure, you might feel afraid, you might feel vulnerable, um, you might have moments of overconfidence even, and those are normal. I think that would help us make sure that people don't feel like they have to constantly put themselves out there as I'm a great manager, I'm a great leader, I'm competent, right? But can, they can be honest about what they're feeling at, at, at any given moment. Let's talk a little bit about pessimists and, uh, and maybe in a bit of a different way. Now, you talk about some research in your book that suggests that pessimists have a propensity to be promoted. And I just thought that that was so counterintuitive. Why does that happen? Yeah, and actually, there's really interesting research that shows that that people who are cynics or pessimists tend to actually um, we afford them more authority or more power um, because they tend to be counterintuitive, right? So, and oftentimes we um, really reward people who are positive and optimistic, but when someone comes in and goes, "No, no, here are all the risks," we start to listen to them because it's different than what what we've what most people are saying. And it it really tunes into our our negativity bias, right? So then we're like, oh right, yes, there are all these risks. Thank you so much for for pointing them out. Um, you know, there's I talk in that chapter also about motivational focuses. So like some there's a, a sort of notion that some that people are either prevention focused, which is where the prevent pessimists fall into. So they're really focused on pointing out the risks. They tend to to move slowly. They tend to be um, you know, sort of more negative about whether things will work out or not. And then there's people who are promotion focused, very focused on the opportunities, what could happen. And that's, a, that's just a normal divide in how we think about the world. Um, the trouble with the, the prevention focus and the pessimist is when that becomes an obstacle to actually getting things done. And what we know, both positive and negative emotions are contagious then that negativity or that pessimism becomes contagious and then other folks feel not empowered or they don't have a sense of agency that they can affect the outcome which is really you don't you don't want to take that away that's that's one of the real 
um, problematic issues with the pessimist is, you know, a negative outlook isn't the worst thing, especially if you pair that person with someone who has a more positive outlook. But once you get into that sense of agency that they don't feel like they, they can change things, that this sort of negativity is destined, there's no, there's no control, we have no control over the outcome, that becomes really problematic because then you start to see stagnation, lack of innovation, et cetera. Right. So, Amy, what if if um, let me let me know if I'm labeling this sort of correctly? Is would someone that plays devil devil's advocate be the same thing as a pessimist? Yeah, you know, it, yes, certainly. the The difference would be with the devil's advocate um, is that the it might be a role that they're playing in that moment. It may not be their outlook on life. And in fact, one of the tactics I recommend for the pessimist is to actually give them that role to play because chances are they're very good at pointing out all the risks and downsides where things could go wrong. And you want someone to do that. And, and you don't want to sort of, there's this tendency in organizations. And I, I'm curious if you see this in the organizations you work in, you know, for people to insist on positivity, some people are calling it toxic positivity, right? Is that we need to be optimistic. We need to be, but there's real danger in doing that. And the yeah. pessimist can play a really critical role if you actually make it an official role of like, okay, you play a devil's advocate in this meeting. You tell us when we're starting to coalesce around group think, we're not seeing the risks. That's that's your job. I mean, do you see that in, in organizations? Yeah, well, so certainly, and I and I think my lens into that is that the um, the the sort of the toxic positivity is a close cousin of like toxic certainty, and I, like toxic certainty is not necessarily a term that's been for, that's been coined yet. Uh, maybe it has, or maybe it should be, but that that's my bigger concern is that having to be overly pop, pe uh, uh, positive also means you're going to be optimistically confident in your plan which we know is just a, a recipe for disaster, not just because there's no such thing as certainty in this world, but the other part is that employees will, will, like, will, will work incredibly hard trying to figure out a way to meet your expectations and either fail miserably but sort of overwhelm trying, or they will cut corners and become unethical in the pursuit of an unattainable goal. So like, there's all kinds of things that are wrong with it. So yes, I fully agree, fully agree with you, Amy. Yeah, and I actually haven't heard that term toxic certainty. Maybe you need to coin it because I do think that's so that the that that sort of breeds or connects to that overconfidence as well. Is that the minute you're like, yeah. this is going to happen, and don't start to question, well, what would stand in the way? What would be the obstacles? How would we overcome them? Then people are blindsided when that what they were so certain was going to happen doesn't happen, and that's yeah. you start to then you have a bunch of folks in amygdala hijack which is not a great place to be. And so I, I, do, I do think you want a mix of both types of people who have different outlooks, of course, positive, you know, pessimists and, and optimists. Um, and you don't want to insist yeah. that one way is the right way. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. That's good. So I'm, I'm going to run straight to the trademark office when, uh, when we're done this conversation. <laughs> So you heard it only... first, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and I and I think one of the one of the things that I've learned through your book, getting along, and then other conversations, is that pessimism is not inherently bad. I, I think 
personally, I, I just, I'm just not a fan if somebody always shows up as the pessimist and, and uh, but maybe I need to rethink that. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's some good uh, fodder for thought, Amy, thank you. And, and, you know, I think the other thing to keep in mind is sometimes it's, um, there's good reasons for that pessimism. I mean, there's a lot to be pessimistic about in the world right now. So, um, yeah. you, know, you have to sort of acknowledge that there's also could be underlying anxiety for someone, yeah. um, you know, resentment, like the, it may be that the, this is someone who, whose ideas have always been shot down. And so they're really feeling resentful that, that other people's ideas are getting merit. And so they try to take them down. There's rational reasons for that behavior. And I agree. It's, it is, I don't, I really am careful about how much time I spend with pessimists because it can really bring you down. Um, yeah. But you have to remember there's good, often good reason behind it. And so it's about addressing the behavior, trying to give them a role to play, trying to counter, right? trying to give them a sense of agency. So if you have someone who stops by your desk every day, and you know, has a litany of complaints, right? Instead of you, you could try to say, well, what, what good is happening for you right now, right? Trying to sort of reframe. Yeah. Or you could even say, oh, that sounds really frustrating. What do you want to do about it, right? Try to, again, their perspective may be valid. Those complaints may be valid, but give them a sense of agency so that they feel like they can actually do something. Yeah, well said. And you mentioned affinity bias and confirmation bias. I, I think that I can be overly guilty of writing people off. And it's a good reminder that instead of that, I should be asking them, you know, tell me more. Like, what are you seeing there? You know, when they're pessimistic or they have a different viewpoint, why do you see it that way? What What do you think would be a different approach? Like, I, I think it's a it's a it's a signal to get curious. So, yeah. that's uh, that is helpful. Thank you for that personal uh, coaching moment there, Amy. <laughs> Happy to so help. There, there's there's something uh, there's something else that that doesn't sit well with me in this whole conversation. Is uh, I've loved the conversation, but the thing that I the thing that I have a hard time with in all of this. Is it seems like the like the burden of effort always falls on the person that's more self-aware, and it just seems really un like and and at this period of time in particular, I mean, we're coming through like two and a half years of a pandemic, all of these stresses and burdens on people, and now we're also saying like you also have to now manage other people that are showing up in in a in a really. You know, uh, uncomfortable way or a difficult way like how do we reconcile that yeah and i'll be honest this is something that doesn't always sit well with me and and when you know when you ask that question i'm like i, I want to say like i'm sorry yeah, yeah that is <laughs> that is the reality you know in in a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of this book does require the reader to be the adult in the room and for lack of a better term and and there's a couple of things i'll say about that um Number one, I do think it's an unfair burden. However, if would I rather be the person who's less self-aware and causing problems for everyone? Absolutely not, right? Also, don't see it, try really hard not to see it as something you're doing out of generosity for them. I, I believe in being generous and kind to people, but ultimately, the reason you're trying to repair this relationship or the reason you're using your self-awareness or your ability to regulate your emotions in order to try out some of these tactics is for you, right? It's not about them. It's about you and what you need from the organization, what you need from the interaction, you being able to, to move your career forward. Now, if you're not getting anything from it, if you've tried and, and you, 
you know, have acted like the adult in the room and they're just not reciprocating in any way, then it's time to set up boundaries, right? I'm not telling you to keep, this shouldn't be a bottomless pit of your effort where you just keep giving, 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 and they don't give anything back. At some point you can cut your losses and say, okay, like I need to reduce the way I, the amount of time I spend with this person. Maybe I even need to look for a new job, right? But to, but I do believe ultimately you're going to learn something, even if you, even if they don't reciprocate, even if it doesn't go anywhere in your efforts of trying out these tactics, I think you're going to see that you actually learn a lot about yourself. It improves your other relationships. That That's one of the things that's really clear to me is when I've had to set boundaries with a, you know, I'm thinking of someone in particular, right? When I've had to set boundaries with a political operator, right? It helped me see how I could set boundaries in other relationships that were healthier. And, or it saw how, how someone else might want to set boundaries with me and how I needed to accept that. So again, I think, yes, the burden falls on us as the more self-aware person, as the person who's willing to buy this book and engage in this conversation, right? But ultimately it's serving you, not them. And I think you just have to keep that in mind. That's an excellent paradigm shift. And I, you know, and I think whether you believe people can change or not, or workplace dynamics can change or not, you are often right. Uh, and, and there's the self-fulfilling prophecy thing. And, and I genuinely believe most people want to, want to be great colleagues. Like I think the vast majority of people want to do great work with cool colleagues and be valued and be trusted and help not harm. And we just don't always know, which brings me to my next question. How do we tell if we are the problem, Amy? <laughs> oh, this is my favorite question. Because the book, when I originally handed in the manuscript, it was way too long. And all of those archetype chapters actually included a section, if this is you, right? How to notice this is you and what to do. We had to cut it all because the book was just way too long. Maybe it's my okay, next Okay, hang book. on one sec. Is yeah. that going to be your next book then? I think it might be. I think it might be. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but but it's it is I have to say so part of the logic of cutting it was that we felt like people in my I say we me and the two editors I worked with felt like people actually didn't have the self-awareness to know they were the difficult person. But I cannot tell you the book has been out for less than a month and I can't tell you the number of emails, LinkedIn messages, um, tweets I get that are like, I'm reading your book and I'm realizing I'm that person. And so kudos to those people for the self-awareness. Um, I know it's hard, but um, I will say that the part of the work is to look at each chapter begins with the common behaviors and to look at those common behaviors and ask yourself, really be honest with yourself. Am I doing some of these, right? And there's, and you can, there's stories in each chapter. There's the costs of that behavior. If you're reading that, it's sort of tickling the back of your brain and you're going, oh, okay, yep, I've done that before. There's no shame in that. We've all done these things at some point in our career and recognizing that. And then I think the real next step is to get some honest feedback and really go to the people, not don't go to the person in your life who's like, you're great. Don't worry. You're fine. Right. Go to the person who will tell you like it is and ask, say, I have a hunch that I'm micromanaging, or I have a hunch that, um, you know, that I'm seen as someone who really cares about their career at the expense of others' careers. Do, does that ring true? And, and really, 
you know, find that trusted colleague, mentor, peer, whoever, or even someone outside work and say, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this. What do you think? Um, and, and that's often because we're such terrible judges of our own behavior. It's so helpful to get that, that input and then read between the lines. Like, you know, one of the big complaints, especially for people in positions of power is that they don't get honest feedback. But oftentimes, if you pay careful attention and you ask the right questions, you can actually see through the sort of like, oh, no, you're great. We love working with you, right? You can see through that a little bit and start to get a little a more sen- a better sense of actually how you're perceived. Yeah. So find some loving critics. Do not ask your grandmother. Uh, that's the, uh, that, that's the, that's the, my, the message. Although there. my grandmother was the kind of person who would have been like, yeah, you're terrible at those. <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> but no, you, and, and, and I do, you know, again, one of the biggest complaints for people when they move up the ladder is like, I'm, they're like, I'm not sure I'm getting honest feedback. So make sure you build in those mechanisms and don't do, I had a boss who used to do this thing where at, at performance review time, he would deliver your performance review, which is always you know, a tense situation because you're not sure what you're going to hear and no one likes to hear bad things about themselves, but it would be this real tense hour of feedback. And then at the end, he goes, do you have any feedback for me? And I'd be sitting there sweating, being like, I'm not thinking about you. I'm thinking about everything you just told me. So build in mechanisms at a, you know, tell people you're open to feedback. Make sure that when people do give you feedback, you thank them. Then and that you act on it, right? That you yeah. act, you respond to it, so that the it's really easy to signal as a leader that you're not open, that you don't want any feedback, because that's going to be the baseline assumption. So you have to work extra hard to show you are open, you want to hear it, you're willing to hear it, you're willing to act on it. It it, it takes such effort, but it's going to pay dividends later when you are starting to fall into some of these behaviors. Again, we all do. And that that some at least someone on your team is going to be like, you know, there's something you do that's really driving us all a little nuts. Yeah, and I am uh, I am so on board with this. Like I think there's a growing uh, theme here and a consensus that fallibility is is an essential part of exceptional leadership. Like I'm just so here for that because it's uh, it takes the pressure off being perfect and. Boy, does it change the dynamic, you know, the psychological safety and everything else that comes along with it. So that's a great reminder there. Amy, I know you're very well versed on on gender differences in the workplace. And it's a big topic. And we've dedicated entire episodes uh, to this issue. But there is something I would just love your perspective on is, so number one, you talk about some research that suggests that women may be more prone to passive aggressiveness, okay? And Here's the add-on to it, though, is this just seems like such a slippery slope for me because if so, if women are already disadvantaged in the workplace and they resort to these undesirable behaviors, it only widens the inequity. And like, yeah. could could you? T- I know it's a loaded question, but could you touch on why it yeah. happens and how can people like me do a better job of trying to solve this in some small way? Yeah. So there's, and there's, and actually I'm glad you pointed to that, that research on passive aggressive behavior, because what the challenge is, and this comes up very much in the chapter on, on the tormentor too, is someone who you expect to be a mentor, but actually is set on making your life miserable, is that there's two layers to the gender bias. Number one, the way we perceive women's behavior at work, we have a narrower range of acceptable behavior. So when a woman 
advocates for herself, for example, or displays expertise, we might label her as a know-it-all, right? Or, um, you know, if there's someone who, um, you know, the a common, a sort of straightforward, very even brusque comment coming from a man would be very interpreted very differently than if it was coming from a woman. So we have to remember a lot of it is in the perception. Um, the the issue with the passive aggressive behavior is, and what, what we see is that people who are outside the traditional power hierarchy, so don't act, normally have access to power in an organization, will use passive aggression as a way to express how they're thinking and feeling, because there's not a way for them to do it in a straightforward, honest way, or, or for them to still retain their power while doing that. So there's gender bias both in our perception, but then there's gender bias that motivates some of the behavior. Now, I don't have an easy answer for you about what we can do, except very first thing is to raise our awareness and really question. When we start to see passive aggressive behavior, instead of being like, oh, typical woman or, oh, you know, like that's just so unpleasant. I wish she wouldn't do that is to ask yourself, okay, why would that be happening? Is, is it because this person doesn't feel safe expressing how, what they truly think and feel? And what can I do as a person of privilege or person of power to make it safer for them to speak up? Right. And that fallibility is a big part of it, right. Of, of being vulnerable, making sure that people feel comfortable admitting mistakes, make, um, you know, doing things that aren't always exactly right. Um, but also raising the collective awareness around some of these biases that we all bring to the workplace to, to make sure that we're not um, sort of, um, not pigeonholing, what's the phrase I want to, sort of pushing people into a corner, backing them into a corner. That's the phrase I was looking for, of backing wow. them into a corner of unproductive behavior. And that's, you know, asking yourself, is this organization, does it allow for people with that identity to be straightforward and honest or to do the things that I wish they would do? And oftentimes the answer is no. So then the question is, okay, what changes can I make in the organization? Or can I call out the bias when I see it to, to make yeah. it this safer place for these folks? Yeah, thanks for that articulate explanation of it, Amy. And I know it's a very complicated topic. And I, you know, and I think the more that I learn about these kinds of dynamics, just the more, there's, there's periods where I get become very disillusioned because it just seems like there's so many naturally occurring dynamics, uh, tendencies, biases, and beliefs that perpetuate these issues, even inside of organizations that want to do better and be better. So at, anyways, yeah. I, I, I appreciate you going down that path with me. Yeah, well, and there's there's actually there's a um, a DEI expert who I have so much respect for. Um, we've had them on the on the Women at Work podcast. Their name is Lily Zhang, and Lily really talks about how creating inclusive environments, fighting bias at work, is oftentimes really just about being a good manager. So creating an environment where people feel safe to speak up, paying attention to who's dominating meetings, right? Setting norms about how we treat each other, right? All of that really, um, it, it's basic management, you know, things we should do as good managers, but it also helps to counter some of the bias and undermine some of the bias that shows up. Um, so I think sometimes we think, well, what are the special things I can do to counteract some of these biases? And truthfully, the special things you can do is create a healthy organization where anyone can thrive. Yeah, 
No, that's good. That and that makes it that that makes it seem like we have a lot more license over changing it, and it's not it's not some uh, you know a uh, big massive thing that that is not solvable because it's just such a it's just such a big obstacle that we don't even get started. That's right. That's right. We we touched on um, we touched on insecure bosses. Now the the most probably one of the most troubling dynamics is if you have an abusive boss, and it's it's all too common. And uh, I think oftentimes the solution ends up being find another job. But quitting another job can uh, be reactive and not the best thing for you uh, in the short term, and maybe even in the long term. So you recommend that empathy is a bit of a neutralizer for a, an abusive boss. Can you explain how? Yeah, so this, the, one of the things that we know about abusive supervisors, um, oftentimes it's not actually, it's not something that's like wrong with, with fatally flawed with them, right? And actually there's really interesting research that shows that any of us are capable of becoming an abusive boss in the right circumstance, which I think a lot of people think, no, that would never be me. Um, but the research shows in putting highly competitive environments where you're highly criticized, um, where you're made to feel insecure, right? It can bring out that worst behavior in any of us, especially if we see the abuse happening at the level above us, right? Or we see it happening, we see it happening around us and those people aren't at suffering any consequences are actually being rewarded. So, you know, that's one thing to keep in mind and, and have some, when I say have some empathy, it, it is a tall order to ask you to have some empathy for someone who is to essentially torturing you, right? Emotionally, psychologically, um, that it, it, I don't, I don't mean that you have to sort of give them good graces. I simply mean, put yourself in their shoes to try to understand what's motivating that behavior. Is it that they're under an extreme amount of pressure from the people above them? Is it that they, maybe their, their career is on the line for this project. And so they're, they're, the tension is really high. You know, it, it's, it, again, it's not meant to be generous toward them as much as to give you some insight into what might be motivating the behavior. You know, some of my other favorite research about abusive supervision is, is that we actually have the power to neutralize some of that, that um, behavior by changing the power dynamic. A lot of times abusive supervision is a result of feeling like they're immune, right? They can do whatever they want to the people below them and nothing will happen. If you can show them that they actually need you, right? either find an area of expertise that's critical to the division you work in or um, you know, help them knock it out of the park on a project they really care about. If you can show you have value to them, that can change the power dynamic. Um, it's not always easy to do, but, but the research shows it actually can work. That said, I will also say, as you pointed out, so it is not worth it to stick it out with a boss who is dehumanizing you, demeaning you, undermining you left and right. It, those are behaviors that take a huge toll on our well-being. And it's not, it, it is rarely worth it to stick it out. I would say, you know, come up with a few tactics. And I share some in that tormentor chapter that you're going to try, but give yourself a time limit, right? Maybe it's two months, maybe it's six months. And say, if these three things don't change or if these four things don't change, I'm going to start to brush up my resume. And I will also say, remember, you are in control of the situation. Having an abusive supervisor can feel like you're really 
subjected to that person's behavior, but ultimately you decide whether you stay or go. And that I think can having that agency can remind us it's not completely out of our control. We have the ability to make change. Maybe we even have the ability to draw boundaries around how much we think about that person or interact with that person. And that can help us feel a little bit better about a, a suboptimal situation. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Amy, when I was getting ready for this conversation, I was reflecting on all the different uh, you know, archetypes that I have encountered in, in, in my career. And uh, this is literally on a walk last night, and it sort of just hit me, was that in every single situation, they have served as mirrors to remind me of my own crappy behavior. And, and I wondered uh, you know, if, if you think there's any truth to that. Yeah, I, well, I think there is, I absolutely think there's truth to that. And I think we often react strongly to behavior that either we've experienced previously in life. A lot of the people I talked to for the book told me that, you know, the reason the know-it-all behavior bothered them, for example, was because they grew up with a father who was overbearing and just brought up that, that kind of stuff. So I think there's that it's like either I've experienced that I had a boss who was really abusive, who's ex exhibited those same behaviors, or like you say, it's things that you recognize in yourself and that you're afraid or concerned are, are part of your own persona or part of the way that you interact with others. Um, and it's that, I mean, that is a level of self-awareness <laughs> that I think most people don't have, but it can be hugely beneficial if you're dealing with someone who, again, is pushing your buttons. You know, they didn't create the button. They just pushed it. So think about what, what button, how did this button get created? Why is this so problematic for me? What about this is, is challenging? What am I afraid of? You know, and, and especially if you're dealing, if the, the difficult person you're dealing with is your boss, I've had people tell me, which I think is just such a smart tactic is that they used the experience to start cataloging what they did and did not want to do if, and when they became managers. And I've even, I would even go so far as to say, make a list, right? Take a piece of paper, fold it in half, things I want to do, things I don't want to do. And that, you know, most, most relationships at work, your reporting relationships are time limited, right? They're, you're, it's rare you're going to be reporting to the same person your whole career. So just remember that this will pass. You'll move on. They'll move on. But what can you take from that situation? Even if it's just, even if you found yourself miserable most of the time, what did you learn from it? Is gonna it, that that at least gives you some value from some, what's otherwise a really unpleasant dynamic? Yeah. Do you think uh, do you think people know when they are behaving badly, and they're just not in a position to own it for various reasons, or do you think it's more so a blind spot? I think it really depends. Um, on the person and their and their level of self awareness, my guess is most. Well, as a coach, let me just say, as a as a leadership coach, I can tell you most of my clients don't know right away what what the feedback is going to be. They may have a hunch, but they don't really understand how they're going to be how they're perceived, and and that 
feedback is so valuable because it helps to, and there's, they start to connect dots of like, oh yeah, that performance review I got. Okay. Yep. No, that makes sense. And they start to see the, the, the bigger picture, but the first step in any coaching engagement is to increase the person's self-awareness. So, you know, does anyone get up and say, wow, I'm going to be the best know-it-all I can be today and, and torture my, my, my colleagues with my mansplaining and my, you know, like, no, no one said, I think there's a very small fraction of people who set out to make their colleagues' lives miserable. Very, very small fraction. I think more often it's things, it's more about trying to protect their ego or trying to prove themselves or feeling powerless and trying to gain power in a, in a particular way. I think it's very basic motivations that cause us to do these things and I don't think they even know, you know, I even think I, I have a, a dear friend who um, who's we talk about this all the time about who often resorts to passive aggressive behavior. And it's funny when you point out, she's like, really, you think that's bad? and it's like, yes, you what you're actually feeling is this, but you're saying this. She's like, oh, yeah, I thought it was just being more subtle, you know, and I don't I just don't think we most of us aren't equipped to to see that. My colleagues at HBR, when when I, I, you know, anytime I talked about the book four is coming out, they're like, can't wait to read about us. That's going to be, and I was like, none of you are in the book. Will you please stop? Um, <laughs> and, and, and truthfully, none of them are. I actually am. I don't know if it's um, <laughs> luck or if in, in my, as I've gotten further in my career, I've just made better choices about where to work, but I do have truly wonderful colleagues right now. Um, of course, some of us resort to the behaviors in the book, as I admit I do myself. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's there's some stories I've been nervous. I'll be honest, I could check my emails sometimes and think there's, there's good, two people in particular, I think, are going to recognize themselves in the book and reach out, but they haven't yet. So we'll see. My, I actually was calling a friend who knows one of the, these folks. And I said, do you think she's going to, she's going to notice? And she's like, no, she, she thought she was fine. Like she doesn't, like, it, you know, which was part of the problem, right? Is there was just the lack of self-awareness about the impact she was having on the people she worked with. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I could, I could see how that'd be sensitive. Uh, I think it was I think it was give and take that uh, that Adam Grant wrote a, a number of years ago. He he talked about this dynamic where there can be like unlikely strong relationships and bonds that are created from between adversaries. And so I was wondering is is there a difficult colleague that you have worked with through the years that has ended up being like a significant fixture or a difference maker in your life? Mm, oh, that's interesting. You know, most of the difficult colleagues I I have worked with, I actually think have become significant fixtures, not in, in my life, but in, in the um, sort of in my psyche, because they have taught me, one, they gave me a lot of interpersonal resilience to deal with other difficult colleagues who came along. But they've also taught me, as I was talking about with the, the manager, what I do and don't want to do in an organization. Now, I'm trying to think, is there anyone who I really saw as like an enemy who then became an ally? No, you know, I think in most situations, it's that the, the success has been neutralizing that relationship. So not turning it into a BFF situation, but but more um, that the, the impact their the impact of their behavior just became less significant to me. And, and for me, that's the real win is that it's rare. I do. I, of course, you hear about these stories of people. I mean, I think about like Devil Wears Prada, right? Like 
you, this person who tortures you becomes your biggest, you know, mentor. And I do think that happens, but I think the more likely scenario and the goal I really encourage people to, to strive for is to neutralize that relationship. So it doesn't keep you up at night. So it doesn't become the focus of your holiday weekend, right? Um, that, that it just becomes, you know, oh, well, that was unpleasant. I'm moving on. Right. And, and not, not become such a, a thorn in your side that, that you can't do the things you want to do at work. Yeah. You, uh, you mentioned that you've had uh, kind of surprisingly uh, perhaps, or unintended unintentionally that people have been reaching out to you uh, less about help dealing with difficult colleagues and more about trying to figure out how their own, maybe how they show up as a difficult colleague themselves. And that really like resonated with me and spoke to me. And, and I wondered, because I, I just picture a whole bunch of people struggling because they want to do better. They just don't know how. And you have been at this uh, uh, as young as you are for a long time. And I have to ask you, what does it mean to you that you are having such an impact on people at work, which then transcends their entire lives? What does that mean to you? Oh, that, that is a really good question. And, and actually it's something no one's asked me before. And, and you know, I think that the, the, when you put a book out into the world or you put an article out, you know, I've written hundreds of articles for HBR, you put that out in the world. It's, it's actually a very lonely, well, I wouldn't say lonely, but it's a very focused experience. So, you know, I will write something by myself sitting here at this desk. I'll send it to my editor. We may talk about it. And then it goes out in the world and you don't really, and there's this focus, especially in our world on metrics. How many books did you sell? What's the Amazon ranking? But I will say the, the things when I think about what I'm proud of, it's, it's tiny little comments on an article or a tweet someone sent out, or oftentimes people will write to me through my website and just say, I want you to know. And actually, I remember this one. Um, this one person was dealing with an incompetent manager, um, not an insecure. And I had written an article about that years ago. And I got this email, it came in at like 1 a.m. And the this woman said I was, I was up at night, so stressed out about the situation with my manager. And I read your article and I just want you to know it's helped me so much. I'm, I'm going to bed feeling confident that I can handle this situation. And that was just like, it meant the world to me that I could help someone who's feeling, because we've all been there. We've all been up at 2 a.m. thinking about this colleague or our boss or someone we, we manage and worried that we haven't done them right. And, and to think that I've helped someone deal with that stress and then maybe actually even change their behavior so that other person is also positively impacted. It's just, it really means the world to me. That's a beautiful story. Uh, I, I think of the work that, uh, that you do like a life, it's like a life raft to people. And we're, uh, everybody has got their own struggles. And, and I, I have to believe right now that like the collective global struggle trying to figure out our lives in, in, a, in a kind of a new reality, I think, and maybe that's an, uh, an overused term, but it's different. Like we've never had to deal with anything like this before and the, you know, the, the challenges at work and at home and mental health struggles and health question marks and all kinds of things. And so um, the work that you just do is so important, Amy, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you at least take a few moments to, to reflect on that and, and think about uh, how and, and where and who it's helping. So 
Thank you so much for this conversation today. I just have enjoyed every, every word that you have said. You're just such a delight to speak with and just such an authority on everything that we have discussed today. Well, thank you. This has been truly a pleasure. And, uh, and yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I encourage everybody to get their own copy of Getting Along, Amy Gallo's latest book. Amy, where else can people or, or where would you prefer people track you down on uh, online? Yeah, the best place to go is my website, which is amyegallo.com. I actually have a newsletter that I send out monthly. If you want to stay in touch, hear what I'm up to, you can sign up for the newsletter there. And of course, you can always go to hbr.org to check out my writing there. Like I said, I have hundreds of articles. So, But I love to hear from people if you want to write to me through my website. Um, I always love to hear what, what's on people's minds. That's great. Such a thrill to speak with you today, Amy. And uh, until next time, everybody, wishing you well as you uh, move into the workplace and try to mend some of these relationships and be a better colleague yourself. And I wish everybody well in that pursuit. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, Please reach out to us at UnleashResults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.